Thank you for listening to the Rivers Church podcast with Pastor Andre and the Rivers team. Be sure to subscribe for a weekly dose of encouragement and inspiration to help your daily life. We pray that this message will help in whatever season of life you might be in. So today for the message, I'm going to use an interesting scripture. But before I do, uh, I was having dinner with a friends of ours the other day. And um, my friend, he turned to me and he said, hey, you know Da Vinci's p- painting of The Last Supper? It's going to come up behind me. I said, yes, I'm familiar with it. I've never seen it in person, but, but I've heard of it. He says, if they were at a restaurant, how many seats would they have booked at the table? So my question to you, if you're watching online, you can put in the comments, but how many seats did they book at the table? Who says 12? See that hand? Who says 13? Now Jesus was there. Anybody think maybe not 12 or not 13? Put your hand up. You see, the reason I'm asking is if you notice, the whole side of the table is left open. And I know that this is not a theological painting, and I don't know that this is what the Last Supper looked like, but maybe if we could take a moment and take one of the seats at the other side, I think it'd be like 24 to 26 seats, if we could take a seat at the other side of the table and look at what was happening and reflect our lives and the disciples that were there at the Last Supper, maybe we could learn some lessons about ourselves. You see, because the disciples who are sitting here could represent us. Because in this picture, there's Jesus in the center, but there's a doubter. There's somebody who would betray Jesus. There's somebody that would deny Jesus. There's one who would stay close to Jesus. There were the faithful who, if we're being honest, we probably don't even know their names. We know that Jesus had 12 disciples. We're like, most people go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and two of those are incorrect. But they are the faithful and the nameless disciples who walked with Jesus. And today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the scripture, a scripture that's normally reserved for communions or Easter, and we're going to look at how we can apply it in our own lives and let it reflect who we are through the scripture. You can find the Last Supper in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and in 1 Corinthians 11. But I'm going to paraphrase what's happening. The disciples are sitting at the table. This is the Passover meal. The Passover meal has its roots in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites were in slavery, and God used Moses. Anybody watch the movie, The Ten Commandments? The Prince of Egypt? And he says, let my people go. And he uses Moses to free the Israelites, and they pass over from slavery into freedom. When the angel of death passes over them, the blood of the lamb is on the door. Uh, and it's prophetic of what Jesus is about to do. This is the dinner meal that they were having. What you've got to understand is for the disciples, this wasn't the first time that they'd done this. They had sat at this meal before. There was absolutely nothing unordinary about what was happening for them. They just thought they were having like a Friday night dinner. And as they sat there, after Jesus washed their feet, he begins to teach. He says, hey, take this bread. This is my body broken for you. This cup, it's the new covenant that I'm pouring out for you. That was a bit odd, but you know, when you're at a family get-together, there's always the one person who has to make a speech. You're like, I just want to eat. Well, there's always the one person in your family who you don't want to say grace because it's going to be too long. And sometimes they pray for everything but the food. And this is what was happening at this meal. And what we need to understand is who's around this table. These were Jesus' disciples. We all know the 12 disciples. What we need to remember is Jesus was not the first person to have disciples. If you go through Scripture, John the Baptist had disciples before Jesus had disciples. Some people are like, Really? Yep. In fact, discipleship was built into the Hebrew and the Jewish system of culture in the first century. 
kids would be born. That's how kids start. And then after being born, they would, uh, for the first, I think it's the eight years of their life, they would learn the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch is what it was called, the Torah. And what they would do with that is they'd have to learn it off by heart because they didn't have smartphones where they could go to YouVersion or Google Bible Gateway when they can't quite remember the verse. They had to remember it off by heart. And then after remembering it off by heart, they would continue and they'd try to learn the whole Old Testament off by heart. And then once they'd learned the whole Old Testament, they would sit with a rabbi and they would have a Q&A session, as it were, where they would discuss things. Not, sim- not, similar, not unsimilar to what Jesus did with the Pharisees and the teachers. In the, when, when Jesus' parents lose him, that's a tough conversation to have with God. But when they lose him and they find him in the temple, he's having a Q&A with a rabbi, not dissimilar to that. And then if you made the cut, the, the, the rabbi would say to the students, come follow me. But if you didn't, you'd end up going into your family business. And when we look around the table of the Last Supper, what you've got to understand is Jesus chose fishermen to be his disciples. They had failed the traditional discipleship test, and yet Jesus chose to use them anyway. Jesus used tax collectors. They, too, had failed the traditional test. Even Jesus, being the Son of God, didn't follow the conventional religious form of being, of being a rabbi, but he let God be his rabbi, and he followed God because he was a carpenter. And what we've got to understand is, so you see, some of them didn't meet the sandal of discipleship, but Jesus called them anyway. They were imperfect, and they were used by God. That should give each one of us hope that, in fact, at this table, you know what, I might be imperfect, I might not have it all together, but God can still use my life. But here's the thing is they got to walk with Jesus. Can you imagine that? They got to have conversations with Jesus for three years, sitting with him, eating with him. You know, people often ask, if you could have dinner with anyone dead or alive, who would it be? I often say Jesus. And people are like, well, you're a pastor, you have to say Jesus. And then Christians are like, oh, but you can pray to Jesus. And when I get to heaven, I know that all the mysteries will be revealed to me, but I have some practical questions to ask Jesus. Which one did the disciples snored? <laughs> Jesus, did you snore? Like, anybody ever say Jesus snores? Like, those are the questions I'd ask. I'd say, you know what? Jesus, at Cana, at the, at the wedding, you turn the water into wine, like Simi said, no one stumble. Red or white? <laughs> Some of you are like, actually, because it's a hot climate, maybe it's white. And traditionally, they would make white wine, but was it a picture of blood? So is it red wine? These are the questions I'd ask. Jesus, the five loaves and the two fish. I know that there's five barley loaves. Salmon? King clip? Sashimi, it was a sushi. I just want to know, because it would help me read the Bible better. But the disciples got to do all of this. They witnessed Jesus doing them. And in fact, Jesus, not only didn't, they didn't just witness it. God used them to do the miraculous. And these are the disciples, the closest people to Jesus. And after spending three years doing all of this, we get to the Last Supper. And at the table, after watching the dead be raised, whilst they themselves heal people, you would have one who would doubt him, one who would deny him, one who would betray him. You also have the faithful, like I said, the unknown, but what about one, the one who Jesus loved? The title of your message today is simply this, The Last Supper. We're going to take a look at The Last Supper, uh, the, 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 the Last Supper and see what we can learn from the people at the table. 
Because I'm willing to bet many of us have walked with God. We've watched God do the miraculous. We've in fact prayed for people, but yet we can still have moments of doubt. We could still have moments where we deny the goodness of God in our life or we betray the truth of God's word because it's comfortable or because it's convenient. And today we're going to learn because we can all have doubts. We can all betray our faith and we can all deny the truth at times. But if we were to learn from the disciples, it would help us in our life. So the first person, the first disciple we're going to look at, his name is Judas, the betrayer. Once you've written that down, just say the betrayer. You see, when we hear Judas and we hear betrayer, we immediately think, yeah, well, I, thank goodness I'm not Judas, right? But can I just give you a, a definition of Judas? In fact, even if you look in this picture, uh, I wonder which one Judas was. I, I bet you he's the creepiest looking one. Anybody ever looked at pictures of Judas online? He's always the creepy looking one. He's always like around the corner. <laughs> or like this. But here's a definition of betrayer. It means to lead astray to deliver to an enemy through treachery, to fail or desert, especially in a time of need. And I think many of us have deserted the faith, failed the faith when we needed it the most because of the circumstance, because of the situation, because of a misunderstanding. And what we need to understand in our lives is that we need to move past what we're feeling at times so that God can begin to use our lives. And Judas, in that moment, we need to remember who he was. Judas was chosen by Jesus, but he was trusted by the disciples. He handled the money. Most people don't even trust their bank with their money. But the disciples trusted Judas with the money and the money bag. He wasn't just anyone. He was someone that, God, that Jesus wanted to use as one of the disciples. And yet he still finds himself in this position. And as we, we continue, I wonder how many times we think that maybe, maybe Judas... Judas kind of had it coming. I'll never forget being a youth and young adults pastor, teenagers and young adults especially, always are very honest. And they said, how did Jesus not know that Judas was going to betray him? I said, well, he did know, but he still, he goes, he goes no, no, no. His surname, Iscariot, it just sounds like somebody that would betray you. <laughs> well, fair enough. But you know what's interesting? And he, we all know that Judas is called Judas Iscariot because there was another Judas that was a disciple. That's an unfortunate name. If you're the other Judas. But Judas Iscariot is not his surname. You see, surnames weren't invented yet. Surnames started in the East and they only became popular in, in the West in, in 1075 and after that. Iscariot means man of Kerioth. That is where he came from. In the Bible, you've got people who we assume that their surnames, Mary Magdalene. Anybody thought that was Mary's surname? This is a safe space. It, so nobody put their hands up, but the giggles, the nervous giggles makes me think that everyone's like, oh, wow. Mary Magdalene, her, her surname wasn't Magdalene. It was from where she, it was, it was where she's from, from Magdala. And what people would do because they didn't have surnames is they would define people or identify people by where they came from or what they did. Jesus the carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth. And I wonder, in 2021, we might have surnames, but we are still being defined by where we've come from and what we have done with our lives. And maybe what we need to do is we need to learn from Judas, and we need to say, you know, I'm not going to fall into that trap. I'm not going to let my family history define, define the future that God has 
for me. The addiction with substance abuse that my family said, I'm not going to make that define who I am. The area code that, I've, that I grew up in, I'm not going to let that define who I am. Instead, I'm going to let God define who I am. Not the education that I have, not what's happened in my life, but I'm going to let God decide. And when we can do that, we can understand that that's what God wants in our life. You know that that's the Genesis mandate in the Bible? The Bible tells us that, that God in the beginning says, be fruitful and multiply. Our role as people, as much as that means is about procreation, the principle is this, is that wherever we find ourselves, we need to grow past it. We need to multiply what God is doing in our life. We need to be faithful stewards in our lives. And if we find ourselves in a place where we're identifying by that, what we need to do is we need to step past it and we need to say, you know, I'm gonna grow past what's happening here today. Rick Warren, uh, he said this, it's gonna come up on the screen behind me. Uh, he says this, he says, we are the products of our past, but we don't have to be prisoners of it. And many of us, we, our past will help define us, will help teach us lessons, but we don't have to be prisoners of our past. In fact, there's many people that we can see, celebrities that we might see. For example, Halle Berry, the actress. Did you know that she slept in a homeless shelter when she was trying to start out? And then she did Catwoman, and it was all downhill after that. But you know that she's worth $80 million in 2019? That's 1.1 billion rand. From sleeping in a homeless shelter to growing past it. You've got Ed Sheeran, the musician. Anybody like Ed Sheeran? You know that he used to spend the night sleeping in the London Underground train station? Or on top of heating vents outside Buckingham Palace. I mean, location, location, location. But it's still a heating vent, right? Do you know that today he is worth $110 million? That's 1.5 billion rand. Moving on, we've got Leonardo DiCaprio, the actor. Did you know that when he grew up, he grew up in an area just outside LA where there was great poverty, drug use, and violence, which he was exposed to as a, at a young age? Do you know that he is worth today $245 million? That's 3 billion rand. And then my favorite one of the lot is Roman Abramovich. He is a multi-billionaire. He had the second largest yacht in the world. Somebody bought the largest yacht. So he sold the second largest and asked him to build the largest yacht in the world. Did you know that he was an orphan growing up in Moscow? And from being an orphan in Moscow, he's now a multi-millionaire. He's worth, I don't know how much he's worth. He's worth $13.3 billion. That is 88 billion rand. But the best part about him is he owns the best football team in the world, Chelsea. So glad I got some claps. There's some United people who are just fussing and moaning, and I don't know what for for they are doing that. I really don't. But what we have to understand is these people didn't know God. How much more you and I, who knows the creator of the universe, should go past our circumstances, beyond what's happened in our lives, and trust him for the best in our life? Our growth is our responsibility. And if they could do it without God, how much more could we do with God? Remember when we said yes to Jesus, Jesus said, when we said yes to Jesus, he made us a new creation. Colossians 3 verses 9 to 10, it says this, we'll read it together on the screen. We won't read it together. But it basically says, put on your new self and take off the old. And in our lives, what we need to do is we need to be willing to put on the new and take off 
the old. We need to put on the new, which is heaven's culture, and take out the culture that we've been exposed to that can sometimes limit us and stop us from growing. What we need to do is we need to put on heaven's best, the wisdom that is found in God's word, not just education and knowledge. We need to learn what God has for us. We should do what, you, we should do what Judas didn't do, is we should let God define who we are. And that's what Judas should have done. You know what Judas didn't do? Was he didn't let God define who he was? You see, God's love will determine who you are. God's word will define who you are. So we can often be, we can often say about God's determining who I am, but if you want to be defined, if you want God to define what your purpose looks like, we have to apply God's word in our life. It's not where you come from, it's whose you are and where he is taking you. And God's got a plan for us, God's got a purpose for us, and we shouldn't get sidetracked. You know, the thing with Judas was he, he didn't always have a handle on things. I think sometimes he thought that he had a handle on things, but he never actually did. You know what's interesting is Judas tra- betrays Jesus for a bag of money. But did you know that Judas was also in charge of the bag of money for the disciples? Take a look at what it says in John 12. I'm going to read it with you. It says this. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. So uh, somebody had broken perfume over Jesus, and, he, and, and this is what Judas' response was. He says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And I think so often in lives, we can think we have a handle on something until it begins to have a handle on us. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's friendships. Maybe it's your quiet time and the time that you've been spending with God. If we're not careful, the things that we think we have a handle on can end up having a handle on us. Is this helping anyone today? And Judas, what he needed to do is he needed to come to God and say, you know what? I'm not going to let this have a handle on me. Instead, I'm going to trust you in the circumstance. I'm going to trust you in the situation. And you know, I think something that we can all suffer from is discouragement and disappointment. And we can think that we have a handle on it, but it ends up having, it ends up having a handle on you and I. You see, the Bible, when you read the Bible and you understand who Judas was, he was expecting Jesus to bring a political change and to, to be this, an uprising and, and, and free them from the Roman captivity. But Jesus didn't do that. He said, actually, I've got a better plan. I've got a higher way. And we've got to understand, firstly, that politics are not the answer, but we need to trust God even in the disappointment and the discouragement. The Bible tells us that governments weigh on Jesus' shoulders. So if that's not the answer, the answer is found in Jesus. And as we walk with God, as we trust God, as we don't let the little things build up in our lives like discouragement or even sin. In fact, James 1 verses 14 to 15 says this, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drags us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. If we don't get a handle on it now, it might give birth to something bigger later on in our life. Just helping you? You know, as we move on to the next uh, disciple, uh, I was watching something on Instagram yesterday, and there was this college professor, and he said, how heavy is this glass of water? And the class began to answer, and then he said, you're wrong. 
the longer you carry it, the heavier it gets. And so often as we go through life with disappointment and discouragement, it seems easy to carry it first. The glass of water is not heavy for most people. But the longer you carry it, the heavier it gets, the more that it weighs you down and the more that it affects you in your life. And we need to be able to let go, let God, and trust Him. You ready for the next disciple? The next disciple is Peter, the denier. It's a really encouraging message. You are a betrayer, you are a denier. It gets better, I promise, in maybe three or four points time. So, Peter is the denier. But Peter was, before being the denier, he was the rock on which Jesus was going to build his church. Uh, Beyond that, Peter was the disciple who had a revelation of who God was. And I think it's important to remember that if Peter was going to be chosen by God to build the church, he could have a revelation of who God was, and he could still deny Jesus. How much more you and I? That we could fall into that trap, that it could happen to you and I, that we could end up, but we could end up betraying the faith that we believe. And we may never completely deny Jesus that he exists, but we could deny him in certain areas in our life. A definition for deny is this, to refuse to admit or acknowledge something. So often in our lives, we can refuse to admit that we need God's help, refuse to admit that this area of our life is, is in need of God's guidance and his wisdom and correction. And we need to be willing to say, you know what? I'm not going to deny God access to my life. I'm not going to deny God access to my marriage and my business and my family and the things that I'm going to. Instead, I'm going to trust him. In John 18, we don't have time to read it. We read of how John, I mean, of how um, Peter denies Jesus. In fact, what's interesting is uh, Peter and John are both walking in because, P- because John knew certain people, he ended, ended up going in where Jesus was and Peter ends up sitting by a fire and a servant girl asks him, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? Peter says, no, it's the other guy, Judas. <laughs> and then somebody else asks him. He says, no, it's not me. It's somebody else. It's, it's one of the... It's Thomas, he, he was doubting a little bit, it's not me. And then the third time they say, hey, was it, is it you? He says, no, and then the Bible tells us the rooster crows three times. And what's interesting about the scriptures, the Bible says that Peter followed God, but he followed at a distance. And so many Christians, we follow God, but we can end up following him at a distance. And when there's distance between us and God, it allows room for things to come in between us. It's like traffic, when there's traffic and a taxi's trying to come in between you. If you leave a little bit of space, I'm just getting some stuff off my chest. So what we do is we try to get as close to the car in front of us to prevent someone from cutting us in. Why don't we do that with God? Why don't we get so close to God that it's not going to allow room for anything else to get in between? We've got to ask ourselves, what's gotten in between us and God? Is it sin? Is it the crowd, like for Peter, when the crowd began to ask him questions, to put pressure on him? Anybody you know that's going to happen in December? When you're sitting at the braai? And someone says, you really still give to the church? Do you have to be in the building? Can't you just watch a line when it's convenient to you? What we need to do is we need to push past the crowd. How can you trust God despite what's happened in your life? We, we need to not let disappointment get in the way. Hurt get in the way. Our own preferences get in the way of what God wants to do in our lives. And here's the most important one. We mustn't let comfort get in the way. The Bible tells us in the, in, I think it's, uh, it's is it John 18, 18, it says this, 
We'll read it together on the screen. And it says, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. It was cold, so Peter tried to get comfortable. And when you try to get comfortable, it puts him in a position that would take him off track from God. I wonder how many of us try to get comfortable, and as we try to get comfortable, it pushed us out of the, the area of our life that God wants to use, the purpose that we had for Him. And when he got comfortable, maybe we got comfortable around the wrong people like Peter did. And the people began to question us and pressure us. And because of what's happening and because we don't have the answers, we begin to step away from what God has for you and I. Let's make sure that we are not trying to get comfortable. You know, one of the, the, the things that could try to make us comfortable is watching church online. I know we've spoken about that. But I got comfortable with church online. My wife would correct me all the time. Babe, worship is starting. Yeah, I'm just making coffee. Would you do that in the building? No. And I pressed the coffee machine, and she'd stare at me, and then we'd have to worship together. And one day I was sitting on the couch. She's like, would you sit in church and worship? I'm like, no. I'm so grateful I have a wife that corrects me and helps me. But often online church can do that to us. You know, it's a great avenue if you can't be in the building like with the cycle challenge today. But often we get too comfortable at the other end of the stream. If you're watching at home, this is a great, great moment to be responsive and lean in. But we mustn't get too comfortable. Church was never a place for the comfortable to come. It was a place to challenge us, a place to grow us, and a place to let God do what He wants to do in our life. You know, the other thing I find interesting about Peter is Jesus told Peter, in the next 24 hours, you will deny me three times. Now, if that's going to happen, and you've got to understand who Peter was. Peter was that guy. Peter was the guy who's at the braai in his shorts. How's it, but that, that is how I picture Peter. I don't, maybe it's just me. It's just me, great. But he was the guy. He, he, to which he says, Jesus, that won't be me. I'm not going to be the guy that denies you. Don't even be crazy. Do you know who's going to deny you? It's, it's, it's Judas. He's just creeping around the corner like that. It's, he's going to be the one. And I, and I heard Thomas was doubting a little bit. He's going to be. I won't. But you know what I think happened? Was he denied Jesus the first time and nothing happened? And he denied Jesus the second time. And nothing happened. And so many of us can do something once. Nothing bad happens. We do it again. And then we get comfortable with the fact that we've done it once and we've done it twice until we do it one more time and then one more time it's too late. It takes us off course from God and we become too comfortable. What we need to do is say, I'm not going to do it the first time. Just because I haven't felt the... Just because I haven't felt the consequences of it, let's not get comfortable. You ready for the next disciple? That's two down, ten to go. So, somebody just looked at the person next to them like, thanks guys. Thomas, the doubter. Never forget that Thomas was at the table. Everybody heard the saying, doubting Thomas? It comes from the Bible, where Thomas did not believe that Jesus had risen again. In fact, we'll read it in a little bit where he says, I want to actually see the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. But what we've got to understand is that at the time, there was an attitude of mourning. You see, Jesus had died, and people were completely shocked. 
They weren't expecting this. This isn't how Jesus was supposed to die. In fact, two people, after Jesus is risen from the dead, go to Jesus and say, why are you not sad? And then tell Jesus what happened to Jesus and why Jesus should be sad about what happened to Jesus. Somebody else sees Jesus and says, have you seen Jesus? Jesus is like, huh? He goes, I know you're the gardener. And Jesus is like, how am I the gardener? I'm the good shepherd. How am I the gardener? And then she goes, oh, wow, it is Jesus. And then, he, and then she has this moment in this revelation. What we've got to understand is the atmosphere had caused doubt to creep into a lot of people's minds, not just Thomas. Take a look what it says in, in John 20. Sorry, in Matthew 28. It says this. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Not Thomas doubted, but some doubted. And the reason that we get doubting Thomas is if you look in John 20, it says this. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, he obviously had a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of nails and place my fingers into the marks of nails and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. If the disciples, even after seeing Jesus rose from the dead, doubted that he was Jesus, don't be surprised that Thomas had doubt when he hadn't seen him. And the reason I'm focusing on this is because as Christians, we all face moments of doubt. Just like the disciples had gone through the crucifixion, there was a heavy atmosphere. We are coming out of a pandemic. Many of us have lost people. Many of us have lost jobs. Our families don't look the same. There's been issues that have been brought up that we thought we had dealt with years ago. And the atmosphere might cause us to doubt God. And as a Christian... It's okay to doubt God and what's happening, but it's not okay to live there. How do I know this? Because John the Baptist, who Jesus says, there is no greater than anyone born of woman than John the Baptist. John the Baptist who says, this is the one who I was telling you about, who I'm not worthy to tie their sandals. That John the Baptist then goes to Jesus and says, are you the one? Because he finds himself in prison. And he finds himself locked down and he finds himself dealing with anxiety and stress. And if this is the God who has said he was, why is it not getting better? Why does it still look this way? And as he asked that question, well, we would ask ourselves, have we ever asked that question? God, is this the way? God, should I still keep trusting you? God, maybe I heard wrong. God, why isn't this changing? And what we need to understand that Jesus calls John the Baptist the greatest even after he has that moment of doubt. And in our lives, we need to understand that doubt does not disqualify us from the God using us and from the purposes of God. And doubt doesn't mean that there's no faith in our life. In fact, doubt and faith work hand in hand. Faith is the remedy to doubt. And faith comes from hearing and hearing the Word of God. So if faith comes from hearing, we need to be in church. We need to be in our Bibles. And when we have moments of doubt, it's a reminder to ourselves that we need to get our faith levels up so that we can counter the doubt that we are facing in our lives. And our response to doubt should be to go to Jesus. And when Jesus comes to us, look at what happens in John 20, verses 26. Be careful what you ask for, as Thomas learned. 
It says this, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood amongst them. Jesus breaks in and then says, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And in that moment, John, I mean, in that moment, Thomas, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you have come. And what you've got to see, Jesus' response is, notice how he comes to Thomas's level. He doesn't expect Thomas to deal with the doubt and then get to God. God's okay, this is what you're dealing with. I'm going to come down to your level. I'm going to meet you where you're at, but I'm not going to leave you where you're at. And then he says, hey, if you have doubt, look at the evidence of the cross. Let it become tangible and real in your life. The nail-scarred hands that should tell us that when there's a dead end, our God makes a way. Where there are dead dreams, he's the God of resurrection. And that same power that's in the, that, that raised Christ from the dead is in you and I. And we need to trust him. The last disciple that we're going to do today, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Just helping? Just helping online? You can maybe send a comment. You know that in the Gospel of John, this is how John refers to himself. The disciple whom Jesus loved. I remember reading that and saying, how arrogant. Do you not have the other disciples? But as you study this, perhaps it was the opposite of arrogance. Perhaps it was twofold. To one, make his name smaller so Jesus' name was the one that was elevated because it was identified by his relationship to Jesus, not who he was. But more than that, maybe it's to remind us that everyone sitting in this room is the disciple whom Jesus loved the disciple whom Jesus changed your life. You know that's not the first name that, um, that John has. In Mark 3, verse 17, it says, Jesus called them, nicknamed them. That says John and his brother, the sons of Zebedee, Zebedee's their dad. He nicknamed them the sons of thunder. If Jesus is giving you a nickname, there's a reason for it. When you read the gospel, when you first find John and James, there's at one point in the gospel, you know that we're all on a journey and we're dealing with stuff. I was at a bachelor's yesterday, we're go-karting. I'm too aggressive and too competitive, and I'm working on it. I know I'm walking here, but my side is sore. I don't want to look at Simon because he beat me in one of the races. But John and James were rejected in a town. Do you know what their response is? Jesus, should we call fire from heaven to destroy the town? This is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He went from the son of thunder to the disciple of love. And that's what the redeeming love of God does in our life. It takes us from where we used to be and it transforms us so that we can experience the love of God. Many of us want life change. Anybody want life change? Far few of us want lifestyle change. And when God comes into your life, he doesn't change your life. He changes your lifestyle and your life follows. Your eternity is guaranteed in heaven, but our responsibility is to say, God, have your way in my life. I've got the gift of grace that's on the cross. If if grace is a gift that I've, I've got, if my salvation and my future is a gift that I've got, it means this. I'm not in control because I don't deserve the gift. I didn't make the gift, but if I'm receiving the gift, my responsibility is to be humble in receiving it and let your will be done in my life. And the other thing that we find about John as we come to a close is this in, um, in John 13. 
It said, now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Some of you are like, what's a bosom? (laughs) It's the chest. But the writer would use the word bosom to explain intimacy. And it's the part of the chest which which in, in the old times they believe is where the heart was kept. Notice where John was laying. He was laying close to the heart of God. And for you and I, we need to get close to the heart of God, not let anything get in between. And when we understand the heart of God, when we get intimate with God and He begins to work in our life, we can become like John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the only disciple at the cross. None of the others, just John, because he understood what it meant to be close to God. And even though I don't understand what's going, I want to stay close to his heart. Even though I don't understand what is taking me, I've seen what God's done in my life. I've seen the evidence of the cross, so I'm not going to doubt, but I'm going to trust him. I'm going to make sure that I head towards him. And as we come to a close, I have one last verse that will hopefully encourage you. Just before Jesus gives the Great Commission, if you're not familiar with church, the Great Commission is Jesus' last commandment to the disciples on earth. He make, he make, it makes the statement in, John 20, in Matthew 28. Then the 11 disciples, because Judas hung himself, went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. How many disciples? Sorry? At home? I'm assuming you're saying 11. Even though there was doubt, even though there was denial, even though there was confusion, God still used the 11 disciples. And it's not too late for you and I if we are willing to come back to Jesus, to the place where he told us. And right now, maybe you're in this room and you're like, well, I've, as a Christian, I've wrestled with doubt. I've had moments of betraying and denying. But I, need, I know that I'm in this place and I'm watching online and I, I need to get my life right with God. And I need to come back to him today. I'm going to pray for you in a moment. Or maybe you're here, it's your first experience, your first opportunity to be in church, and you've never actually said yes to Jesus. Somebody invited you or sent you a link. You see, you, you won't be able to overcome the doubt that you might face in life, or you won't be able to, to, to navigate the challenges that we face. You've never been called the disciple whom Jesus loves. Now is an opportunity for you and I to say yes to that. So if I could ask everyone to close their eyes and bow their heads. You're coming back to God because you've let doubt and denial and all those things get in the way. Or maybe you've never had an opportunity to say yes to Him today. If you're in the building, I want to say a prayer and I'm going to ask you to repeat after me, but I want to know who I'm praying for. So if if you're making that decision for the first time to go to Jesus and say, yes, you are my Savior. I am going to get close to you. I want to be the disciple whom Jesus loved. Or maybe like Peter, you fell away. Don't forget that God still called him back. Thomas was still used. If you're one of those two groups of people, you're coming back or you're saying yes to him for the first time, just raise your hand so I can see who I'm praying for. And I'd love to include you in this prayer. Put your hand up nice and I see that hand in the back. That's an amazing decision. I see that hand over there. I see that hand towards the front. I'm looking up in the balcony. Put your hand up nice and high. 
See that hand towards the front in the balcony over there. Look in the middle. Put your hand. I, I don't want to miss you. You matter to God. I see that hand in the front. That's an amazing decision that you're making. Under the, under the gallery, I see some hands going up over there and over there. On the side of the building, just raise your hand up nice and high. I don't want to. I see that hand. Hands going up everywhere. What an amazing decision you're making. So if you made that decision, I'm going to say a prayer. I see that hand over there. It's an amazing decision. What I'm going to do is I'm going to say a prayer. I'm going to ask you to repeat after me, but it's not just going to be you. It's going to be everyone in the building. So let's pray like this together, church. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Today I accept him into my life and my heart. Change me. Take my past. Take off the old and I put on salvation, your word. Give me a fresh start and a new beginning. Where there's doubt, give me faith. Where there's denial, give me confidence. And where I might have betrayed, give me the strength to try again. I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. We hope you have been blessed and inspired by this message. 